As you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible, and if you're here on Good Friday, we're turning to the same text, Hebrews chapter 10. In 2015, there was an article written in Forbes magazine entitled, Use It or Lose It, The, the Science Behind Self-Confidence. The article begins with these opening words, the reason that so many people never fulfill their potential is not a lack of intelligence, opportunity, or resources, but a lack of belief in themselves. Or put another way, too little self-confidence. And then it says this line, without it, you can do little. With it, you can do anything. Slap that on a t-shirt and start selling it, right? That sounds so profound, and in a sense, there's some truth to that. We understand in the world that we live in that a little bit of confidence can go a long way. How's your confidence this morning? Confidence is a funny thing. You see, you can have none when you should have much, and you can have much when you should have none. Here's a better question this morning, and one that our text this morning forces us to ask, are you confident that you are okay with God? Are you confident that if you were to stand before God right now, today, at this very moment, that better yet, God would be okay with you? There are many who are confident that they are fine with God. When God is not fine with them. Here's the thing, God wants us to have confidence when we stand before him. God longs for us to experience a confidence when we stand before him, knowing that we are okay with him, knowing that we have in fact been granted full, unrestricted access to him into his presence, not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. But you see, this is not a self-confidence. It's not a kind of confidence that we can muster up on our own. It's not a swagger that we can walk into the presence of God and exude and expect that he is simply going to be okay with and allow us full access to himself. No, this is a secure confidence, not in what we have done or what we can do, but what Christ has done for us. You see, access to God's presence had to be secured for us, not by us. And Easter Sunday is a celebration of what Christ has done to secure that access to God on our behalf. It's what gives us confidence to Him, to approach Him, to stand before Him, to live with Him, to know Him, to experience all that He is. And that's what the author of Hebrews chapter 10 is really getting at, and it's how he begins in verse 19, reminding us of the confidence that can be ours through Jesus Christ. Here's what he says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." Easter reminds us, the entire weekend reminds us that we can have a confidence before God, that we can have an access to God that is granted because of Jesus Christ. 
I want us to look at some of those nuances this morning from this text. And the first thing we see from this passage is this, that Jesus secured our holiness. Our confidence is based upon what Jesus has secured for us, not what we can do for ourselves. And the one thing that we could never produce for ourselves is the amount of holiness required to stand in the presence of God, to have full and complete unhindered access to God himself. God's presence, as we saw on Good Friday, if you were here, was protected. Access to him was protected because of his presence. We saw that in the Old Testament, there was a time when access to God was significantly restricted. It was very difficult to approach God and to even consider approaching God. There was no confidence in approaching God in the Old Testament context. And yet, here, the author of Hebrews says this, that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. He says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, there is a call for us to draw near. It's interesting, you can walk into somebody's house and instantly tell much about that person, can't you? Our homes are a way in which we tend to express ourselves, specifically in this culture. You walk into somebody's house and all you have to do is look around at the style of the house, the colors on the wall, the kind of decor that they typically choose, and you can tell a lot about that individual if you're paying close attention. You can get glimpses of their personality. You can get glimpses of what they value. You can get glimpses of essentially who they are. When you walked into the house of God, the temple in the Old Testament, God intended for you to experience the very same reality. It was supposed to tell you a lot about him. You walked into his house and instantly you got a sense of of how grand it was. In fact, here's a picture of the temple right behind me. This temple structure in the ancient world was marvelous, and it was massive. You walked in in these high vaulted ceilings, and the beauty of the artistry, uh, artistic elements around the temple, every part of it was intended to tell you something about God, his grandeur, his majesty, his beauty, his power. You were intended as a result to feel very different, very small, to experience the gap between who God was and who you were The very blueprints of the temple, again on the screen behind me, were designed to help you experience this. The whole temple pointing you towards the very presence of God, calling you to experience Him and all that He is and all that He's revealed Himself to be. You'd walk through the front of the temple into this outer courtyard, and as you went towards the center of the temple, the the Holy of Holies, you got closer and closer to the very presence of God. All of this teaching people about, again, the magnitude of God and especially about his holiness, his purity, his total perfection. Right in the center, you see that picture there at the very back, the holy of holies. It was the place where God promised his power and his presence would dwell amongst his people. He would manifest himself there in a very unique and distinct way. And so as you drew closer and closer to that place in the temple, you saw more and more of his holiness. All of this, by the way, was a reminder not only of who God was, it was actually a reminder that God had created humanity to dwell with him. 
The fact that God would create a place where you could dwell with him, where you could enter into his presence, was a reminder that this is the very purpose for your existence and mine. By the way, maybe you're here today and you've been asking those kind of questions. Why am I here? Why do I even exist? And, and is there a God? And if there is a God, why would he create me? The answer is actually profoundly simple, and we see it at the very first pages of the Bible all the way to the very last chapter, Revelation 22. God created humanity in his image uniquely to dwell with him, to know him, to function in a relationship with him where we would find true joy, true life, true significance. The temple reminded the people of God of just that, that God had not left them alone to experience life apart from him, but that he desired to be with his people, amongst his people, to live with them so that they might draw near to him and experience all that he had created them to be and to know. To enter into the holy places was to increasingly again draw near to God. The holy places imply not only that God is holy, but that we must be holy if we are going to dwell in him. As you drew near to the holiest place in the temple, you began to realize it was increasingly more clear that you were not like God. You were not holy like him. You were not perfect like him. You were not pure like him. He was so very different from you. You were reminded that as you drew near to the holy of holies, that to be in the presence of God, you too must be holy. But you see, that poses a massive problem for all of humanity That problem is identified in Scripture as sin. Sin is the lack of holiness. In the temple, God's holiness was protected because of sin. But at the same time, we were protected from his holiness because in our sinful condition, if we were exposed to the full weight and brilliance and majesty of his holiness, of his presence, then we would instantly die. That's what our sin has done to us. There was an elaborate sacrificial system, as we saw on Friday, of cleansing and purification. It's a system that's identified here. The context of the book of Hebrews, again, be reminded that it was written to a bunch of Hebrews, Jews, who understood the Old Testament, the law, the sacrificial system. They lived underneath this system that helped them understand God, but it was a system of cleansing and purification. It reminded them of the holiness of God, and it constantly, perpetually reminded them of their lack of holiness. This text identifies the great priest, and again, this great high priest would be able to enter into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God, just him once a year on the Day of Atonement. He would go in on behalf of the people. He would be a representative for the people. He too went through an extensive cleansing ritual because, again, he himself was not holy. This is the reality for every single one of us. The call to draw near to God, the call to access God, the access that's been granted, listen, is hindered or allowed based on one thing, our holiness. But the problem for every one of us is that we are not holy. We are not like God. We are not without sin. 
If we're honest with ourselves, our lives are riddled with sin. They are filled with sin. Each and every day we experience the effects of sin. We walk headlong into sin. We have sins we don't know about, and we have sins that we willfully commit every single day. It is very clear to us that we are not holy. And when we see his holiness, we are reminded of our sinfulness Now, the response of most people in the world today, and maybe this is your response too, when presented with this idea of sin and maybe access to God, and when people are asked, are you okay with God? I tried this out, by the way, this week. I I sat with somebody and I asked them this question, are you okay with God? Or do you think God is okay with you? And their response was a very typical response, and you've heard it before. The response was simply this, I'm pretty good. I'm a good person, so yeah, I think I'm okay with God. I think if I stood before God today, God would be perfectly fine with me because really, I'm not that bad. Now, you can say that only if you consider who you're comparing yourself against. I had the opportunity, me and my wife lived in California for three years. I went to seminary there, went to school to study for the ministry, and when I was there, when we went there, we had very little. We had next to nothing. We didn't have any money. We didn't have many, much resources. We didn't even own a car. And I remember one of the sweetest gifts that we were given on, on a few different occasions was that uh, people were very kind and generous, and they would give us a car from time to time. And uh, usually it was nothing special. <laughs> you know, you don't usually give people the best car that you own, right? <laughs> but when you have nothing, having something is way better, isn't it? And I remember being given my, uh, one, one vehicle I was given was a Geo Metro. Some of you are old enough to remember what that car actually looks like, okay? A little Geo, think of a Toyota Yaris, but worse. This Geo Metro was small, it was this little dinky, tiny little car, and it had three cylinders. So as you went on the freeway at full speed, it sounded like you were driving a go-kart, which is a terrifying reality as you pass those big transport trucks. But pretty soon, listen, I was incredibly thankful, and so I was looking at this car, and and for a while, I thought this is the best thing in the world, this car, because I just went from nothing to having something. This car is pretty good. And and I remember, look, people chuckling at me as they saw me drive by. I saw I had all kinds of fun things. By the way, the car was purple. And I went to, to Pasadena one day in California, a nice, nice area, I had to run into some place, and I was in the, uh, it was a library, a bookstore down there, and as I went in, um, I was in there for about 45 minutes, I'd parked my car on the opposite side of the road against the curb, and I remember walking outside uh, from the store, and I looked across at my car, and there is my car, bookended by a Lamborghini and a Ferrari, and in that moment, I realized my car was not that good. You see, it's not until we're in the presence of something beautiful that we recognize, listen, the true condition of who we are. And this is the reality when we stand beside God, the king and creator of the universe, in all of his perfection and holiness and beauty. When you see him, you begin to say things like what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 6, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. I am ruined. I am unraveled as I stand in the presence of something far superior, far more beautiful than anything I could comprehend. But the good news here is that the Bible teaches while we were not holy, Jesus Christ is. 
He is identified here as the great priest, the high priest, that high priest who walked into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God in all of his splendor and all of his beauties. And here we're told this, listen, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the high priestly position. He is the great high priest who marched into the holy of holies, right into the presence of God, because he himself was holy. Chapter 10, verse 10, just listen to these words. And by that will we have been, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The high priest walked in to sprinkle the perfect spotless blood of Jesus Christ to provide some kind of temporary, temporary atonement for the people. Jesus, the great high priest, walked into the presence of God. His perfect blood, holy blood, is sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus walks directly in the presence of God the Father as a representative for his people. And the representation that we have, listen, before God, through Jesus Christ, is perfect holiness. Jesus secured our holiness by being perfectly holy when we were not and could not be. Now, there is a real confidence. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us in verse 19. A very real confidence that you and I can experience in approaching God because we do not approach on our own holiness. We approach on the holiness of another that has graciously given it to us. Listen to what Hebrews 4.16 says. It says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace grace to help us in our time of need. We now have access that has been granted through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest representing us. We too can have a deep confidence in our access to God, not because we are good enough, but because Jesus Christ is good enough. He secured our holiness Secondly, Jesus secured our healing. Verse 22 reminds us that we are called again to draw near. Here's this picture of access again. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, there is confidence, of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You say, okay, we're given a holiness that's not our own. We're given the holiness of Jesus Christ. His perfect life is accredited to us. But what about our sin? How do we deal with our problem, our sin problem that alienates us from God as the scriptures teach? You see, this passage and all the scriptures indicate that not only do we need to be given a holiness that's not our own, our sin must be dealt with as well entirely, completely. Contrary to what many people believe, God does not wink at sin, right? Many people want to say, well, you know what? Yeah, I'm not a good person, not entirely, but you know what? God's just going just to sweep all my sin under the rug. He's going to look at my sin, and, and he's going to look at my goodness and all the good works I've done. He's going to you know what? You're all right. Come on in. That is very far from the biblical teaching. Sin, according to God's holiness, must actually be dealt with. And the imagery here is so powerful, it's so profound, because it points to the potential for the healing of our sin problem. Sin is a disease that all of us have been infected by, and none of us can heal on our own. We need a great physician to come and remove the cancer of sin from us, to completely eradicate it, to deal with it entirely. 
The blood that's mentioned again in verse 19 is a reminder of that sacrificial system, what all the Jews would have been familiar with. They would go through the sacrificial system where they would provide animal sacrifices. The Passover lamb in particular was the once-a-year celebration of how God had liberated them from bondage and slavery, how God had passed over their sins and spared them and given them life instead and freedom to follow him and to worship him. Again, that Passover lamb slain once a year, its blood would be taken into the Holy of Holies by this great high priest and it would be sprinkled on the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant It never actually forgave anybody. It simply pointed forward to the only thing that could. Payment of sins made once and for all by a full and final sacrifice. God is holy. And because he is holy, he must punish sin. As we saw on Friday, because of our sin, we cannot come in. We cannot have access to God. So our sin then must be dealt with if we can experience this drawing near that we are called to. Access had been prevented. Sin destroying that relationship with God that we were intended to enjoy and experience in this life, to find purpose and meaning in. Sin at its heart is a lack of holiness, but it is entirely at its foundation a rebellion against God, a dismissal of his authority, a rejection of his authority. It is outright defiance. And so this sacrificial system was a perpetual reminder. Every faithful Jew knew this one thing. Sin equals death. Sin equals death. Sin equals death. They saw it over and over and over again. God had given them the visual picture of what their sin had earned for them. And yet at the same time, the system was a means of God's grace. It was a reminder that that though sin equals death, God had determined to not destroy his people right away, but instead provide a way to get into his presence, to know him and to love him. He creates a way for us to come to him, but it was hard. That's what the system reminded them of. It gave them no permanent confidence. It was only temporary. Every year they had to repeat the same thing over and over again to pay back over the sins that they had committed that year, to be reminded of the forgiveness that they needed, the mercy that they could find. The curtain in that veil that is referenced here, again, a symbol of prevention, blocking people from getting into the presence of God The high priest went into the Holy of Holies that one time a year to make atonement. Hebrews 9.24 says this, that for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things. In other words, the Holy of Holies was a picture pointing to a greater Holy of Holies, the greater dwelling place of God. You want to know what that place is? Listen to this. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God. Listen to this. This is amazing. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Again, it's so fascinating. In the temple, you saw that diagram. What you didn't see is this. Listen, there were no seats in the temple. It was designed that way. The priests had a job to do. They were never allowed to sit down. Why? Because it was a reminder, again, of the perpetual need for sacrifice, for death. The job was never done, but the word of God tells us That Jesus Christ, when he had made sacrifice, atonement for sins, he took his seat at the Father's right hand. He sat down, having accomplished 
what only he could accomplish. And he began at that moment his intercession for us. He began to pray to the Father, to talk to the Father on our behalf for us. You say, well, what was God, what was Jesus going to be saying? How was he interceding for us? Was he praying, well, God, I just help them to have a good day today. Keep them safe. Uh, give them traveling mercies today, God. No, that's not the indication of the text. Here's what Jesus Christ is doing before the Father for all those who have bowed the knee to him. He stands before the Father making intercession on the basis and foundation of his blood and resurrection and exaltation. He stands before the Father, in other words, listen, when we walk in sin, even to this day, and Satan wants to accuse us before God in heaven, here is Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the Lamb of God who stands there and says, I paid for that. No, I paid for that. He or she is mine. I purchased them by my blood. I have given them life in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for them, none for him, none for her, none for them. He's pleading his own payment for sin and his own perfect righteousness applied to our account. I paid for that. Listen to how Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, 34. Who is to condemn, he says. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 1 John 2, verse 1, John says it like this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have access to God precisely because of the blood of Jesus. Isaiah 53 says this, By his wounds we are what? Healed. Sin is healed by his wounds, and access to God is granted because of his wounds, sprinkled clean, washed with pure water, consciences cleansed. It's what we're going to celebrate in the next two services in baptism in one sense. Yes, the sprinkled clean points backwards to the Old Testament cleansing picture, but certainly it is calling us forward to recognize the gift that has been given in eternal life, cleansed by God's washing. Those who are followers of Christ can claim, as Paul wrote, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? He was the perfect substitute. He took our sin and all of our punishment. He secured our healing by dying for us. And lastly, Jesus secured our hope. This is the most beautiful of all truths when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The confidence we have, the security we have, it produces within us a hope that is unparalleled in this world. You see, access was privileged. One person, right, once a year, under the strictest of rules, could draw near, and even then they lacked total confidence before God. But now, the call here is to draw near. And it says in verse 23, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That's confidence. For he who promised is faithful. His blood purifies our conscience, it cleanses our hearts, it washes us clean of the stain of sin. You know, it is a fearful thing and it should be a fearful thing to enter into the presence of God wondering if you've done enough to be okay with God. 
That is a terrifying reality if you consider it. And yet, that's how so many people choose to live. They believe there's a God. There is even a sense in which they believe they're going to be accountable to that God. And yet they live as if they're going to simply take their chances. Foolishly gambling on their eternity instead of making a guaranteed investment. On the other side of that, listen, if you are in Christ, this is for you. It is a joyful, reassuring thing, entering in confident that he has done everything right. Let me transport you back to school. If you're not a student, sorry to do this to you. You remember the days when you were studying for a test? Maybe it was an exam in college or university or high school. Preparing as best you could, but walking in wondering if you have done enough. Nervous, sweating, worried that you weren't going to pass. Imagine in that moment if somebody walked up to you, the person who had written the test, the person who knew all the answers to that test and said to you, listen, you can sit this one out. Let me take this test for you. I promise you, you're going to pass with flying colors. Now that I say that, it sounds a lot like cheating. (laughs) But you know, that's what Jesus has done for us. He said, you haven't studied enough, you can't prepare enough, you will not pass this test, but I'll tell you what, I can pass it for you. You sit this one out, let me take this test for you. Too many of us place our hope in what we can do And our only hope is in what he has done. There are so many people who have in our world today, maybe it's you here this morning, an unsubstantiated hope, a hope that is without any substance. It's empty. It's futile. But the Christian's hope has substance. That's what you need to understand from Easter weekend this morning. The Christian has all of the substance that undergirds their hope. You say, well, where is the proof of purchase? Where is the receipt that shows the payment was accepted and not declined for insufficient funds? How do we know that the payment Jesus made by his blood was enough? The answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Jesus Christ trampled on death. He walked out of the grave. And here we have God's stamp of approval. Your sins are paid in full. They no longer can have a hold of you. You can be released from the prison and bondage and payment of sin that you deserve. Our hope is grounded in the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement, and the intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says it like this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. It is anchored at the right hand of God, loved ones. It is so substantial and real that it is called an anchor. Think about that imagery for a moment. I don't know much about sailing, but I do know this. Every sailor knows that situations may arise on the seas when the hope and confidence does not lie in the captain or the crew or the engines or the rudder, but only in the anchor. And our hope is not found in the measure of our faithfulness. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? But in the measure of his. He is faithful. 
So let us hold fast the confession of our hope, the author of Hebrews tells us. What is the confession of your hope this morning? What is the anchor for your soul this morning? If it is not the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is an empty and ultimately it is a dead hope. How is your confidence this morning? How's your confidence before the God that you will one day stand before and give an account for your life? Is your access to God granted and secured because you have placed your faith and hope in Christ? If you do not have this hope today, you can. John in 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you just hear those words again? He is faithful and just. He is faithful to secure our holiness. He is faithful to secure our healing. And he is faithful to secure our hope. He is just to pay for all of our sins so that we don't have to. And he calls all of us in here to experience that by turning to him and confessing our sin, bowing before him, recognizing that our hope must be founded upon what he has done and accomplished, not what we could ever do or accomplish. There are moments in your life when everything hinges upon one decision, where everything can change. Let me urge you, if you have not done this already, now is one of those moments. He proved he was faithful by walking out of the grave and securing for us a living hope. Access is granted to all those who by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and follow him all the days of their life. Because he lives, we live. So come live. Come to Jesus if you haven't. Come back if you have run away. Come again if you've found him already and hold on to him as your true and living hope. Father God in heaven, we bow before you. God, with hearts filled with gratitude, you are the true and living hope. You are gracious to save. And this morning, Father, we celebrate, Lord, the gift of salvation. We celebrate, Lord, that yes, you died, but Father, you took your son from the grave. You rose him to life. Our Savior defeated sin and death. He paid the penalty in full. And because he lives, we too can live. God, I pray for every person here that they would find life and hope in Jesus Christ, that they would find healing for their broken, wounded souls, that they would find a holiness that is not their own but has been given as a gift by Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, you give us a living hope, and for that we celebrate this morning. Would you now, God, receive from our lips, and as we leave this place, would you receive from our lives all of the honor and all of the praise for the living hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.